Chapter Thirteen of the Girls of Gardenville by Carol Watson Rankin. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Thirteen: Disposing of Julius Caesar. One. When the benevolently inclined Sweet Sixteen discovered that the sum of one hundred dollars for the purchase of new mattresses was urgently needed by the charity hospital, the members, after a series of so-called business meetings, decided to hold a rummage sale. The idea was Virginia's, because, after her brief sojourn in the hospital, she was deeply interested in all that concerned that not very prosperous establishment. The girls had heard of rummage sales. They had even longed to participate in one, but thus far Gardenville had escaped. Now, however, the town was very seriously threatened, for when the Sweet Sixteen planned to do anything, it usually did it with the utmost thoroughness. When the Sweet Sixteen had been divided into committees, and as Alma Boyce, dissatisfied with what had fallen to her portion, said subdivided into still other committees, the date was set for the first week in October. Catherine Denham and Virginia, because of their supposed ability to put all business propositions through successfully, were elected to secure a vacant store in the business portion of the town. This they did with neatness and dispatch, because when kind-hearted Mr. Danvers, who owned the place, learned why they wanted it, he said pleasantly that he was only sorry that he couldn't lend them two stores. The Stone Girls, the Bentley Twins, and the Roxbury Sisters were to solicit donations. Taking different districts, the girls visited all the housekeepers and shopkeepers in Gardenville, asking them to contribute to the hoarded treasures of their garrets and storerooms. They had some amusing experiences, but in almost every instance their appeals met with a most generous response. There were, however, a few exceptions, and this tale is about one of the exceptions. "'Of course,' said Helen Roxbury, pausing on the sidewalk, "'there isn't a particle of use in going into this place.' "'No,' agreed Helen's sister Amy. "'They say he's kept all the shoes he ever wore from the time he was four months old to the present date,' and that he never wears stockings. Oh, Amy! Honest Injun, asserted Amy. They say, too, that he still has every marble that he ever owned. Imagine Mr. Tucker playing with marbles or anything else, laughed Louise Bentley. He couldn't ever have been young enough to play. Come on, said Helen impatiently. We can't stand here all day discussing Mr. Tucker, especially when we're on his own sidewalk. Perhaps, since Catherine said to go to everybody, we might as well include him, but I know we shan't get anything. Mr. Tucker was the proprietor of a large and prosperous general store, but his soul, unfortunately, did not compare in size with his business. He seemed, indeed, to be small in every way. He was a little wiry man with a long pointed nose, claw-like hands, a mottled, seamy countenance, and a stubby beard. Altogether, as Amy said, he bore an odd, unpleasant resemblance to a newly hatched robin. Perhaps there was no room for a broad mind or a big heart in his warped, undersized frame, but the general opinion was that the man's body had shaped itself to the mold of an exceedingly narrow mind, just as Mr. Danvers's beaming outward self was the reflection of the genial soul within. At any rate, when quarrelless Ephraim Tucker was spoken of as the stingiest man in the state, there was no dissenting voice. Mr. Tucker's family consisted of himself and two orphaned grandchildren, to whom he was fairly kind in his own peculiar way. 
but he was far from generous even in his own household. The girls found Mr. Tucker weighing butter with his own hands. He never permitted his clerks to weigh butter for fear their pounds might run large. Certainly Mr. Tucker's never did. The Gardenville dressmakers, it was said, always asked when patrons presented goods to be made up, are these twelve of Mr. Tucker's yards or twelve whole yards? Mr. Tucker, said Helen, our club is going to hold a rummage sale all next week for the benefit of the hospital. It needs new mattresses. Humph, growled Mr. Tucker. It ain't more'n seven years since they had new ones. I've slept on the same husk mattress for forty years, but I don't notice anybody hustling around to provide me with a new one. But you don't stay in bed day and night, too, suggested Louise. You see, that really equals fourteen years. Well, returned the man, who seemed impressed by this argument, I hadn't thought of that. But I haven't any money to waste on hospitals. Never been sick in my life, never expect to be. But, explained Helen, we don't want money. We want things to sell. Any old thing that you care to give us. Things, put in Louise, that you're tired of having around. They must be some good, interposed cautious Amy hastily. You see, we have to sell them. What kind of things? asked Mr. Tucker, looking reflectively with small, greenish, unpleasant eyes at the three tall girls. Anything you like, replied Helen eagerly. Old shoes, old bottles, old dishes, damaged books, or shop-worn goods of any sort. We're going to sell them for anything we can get. They've had these sales in other towns and made heaps of money. Well, mumbled the shopkeeper guardedly, I might find you a few things, but I don't feel like paying anybody to deliver them. Oh, that's all right, said Helen cheerfully. We'll be glad to send for them. May we have them early Monday morning? Thank you, Mr. Tucker. We're very much obliged. Then the girls, elated with their unexpected success, flitted away, and Ephraim Tucker, smiling his very craftiest and most unpleasant smile, turned to confide in his most confidential clerk. They won't be so much obliged, said he, when they see what they're getting. I've been figuring for six months on finding some cheap way of getting a pile of rubbish in the cellar hauled away to the dump ground, and here's my chance. I'll just unload it on them benevolent young geese. Say, I'll give em that there bust of Julius Caesar that's been kicking around here since the year one. I never was so sick of anything as I am of seeing that there bust of sitting around here doing nothing. It's been in my way ever since I took it with some other trash on that bad debt of Job Peters nineteen years ago. When Monday morning arrived, the stock began to pour in, in bags, bundles, and baskets, and by the wagon load. Even the most sanguine members of the Sweet Sixteen were quite overwhelmed with astonishment at beholding the result of their solicitations. Surely no other shop had ever before contained such a variety of goods. It seemed as if all the garrets in Gardenville had turned their contents adrift, after hoarding everything imaginable for years and years and years. There were chairs in all stages of decrepitude, hats of all kinds and conditions, and for all seasons. In footgear there were shoes, stockings, roller skates, moccasins, snowshoes, skis, and even a cork leg donated by Captain Griggs, who had acquired a new one. In clothing there were garments of all sizes and shapes, and of every texture. From the gauzy filminess of the tartelin skirts worn by little Grace Donaldson as a church entertainment fairy, 
to the heavy blanket suit donated by a stalwart lumberman. The big store, no longer vacant, already showed signs of developing into a most attractive mart, and its eager active young managers added not a little to its attractiveness. Each of the sixteeners, except poor Tecla Bliss, who had to work, had charge of some special department, and this, of course, provoked much rivalry, for each maid naturally wished her department to outshine all the others. Caroline Flanders and Rhea Margrave were to arrange and sell the crockery, under which head, as Rhea said comically, came tinware and all covers without dishes. Anne Margrave and Elizabeth Dillman had a charge of the shoes. Including stockings, Elizabeth always added. To the stone girls fell all feminine garments, while the masculine ones were cared for by the Bentley twins. Because Mabel Mercer was skillful with her fingers, and, as the others said, always strictly up to date in the matter of styles, she became the renovator and the dispenser of millinery. This included, much to Mabel's disgust, a generous consignment of the large straw hats worn by horses, and she was not much soothed when Edna presented her with a large sign reading, Artistic Headgear for Man and Beast, Special Designs by Our Own Mademoiselle Mercer, Not of Paris. Rhoda Belknap and Marjorie Danvers had charge of the books and periodicals, except during school hours when Catherine Denham relieved them. Alma Boyce was sole guardian of the rickety furniture grouped in homelike fashion at the back of the store. And here, likewise, sat Virginia, the cashier, perched on a high stool behind a high, old-fashioned desk. Virginia was to handle whatever cash might accrue. But, said Virginia to the furniture dealer, if I catch you selling this stool from under me, or if you dare to sell this desk, there'll be trouble. Edna made a sign to fit this occasion also, and afterwards Virginia sat in serene unconsciousness above a placard that read, None of this outfit for sale until last day, when you can have it all cheap. Of course, there were miscellaneous articles that would come under no special heading, so all things not otherwise classified were turned over to Helen and Amy Roxbury. Their department threatened to become the most interesting of any. Their shelves contained a bewildering display of broken toys, more or less damaged household goods, and even a few specimens of livestock. We have everything, laughed Helen, who was arranging the conglomeration on the shelves, from a paintbrush to a parrot. We have even a live rat, said Amy, glancing apprehensively at a large wire rat trap on the shelf. That wretched little Johnny Blake left it here, and we're so afraid it'll get out. We can't move it from that spot. He said there was only one way to lift the trap without opening it, and he couldn't remember the trick. Oh, don't touch it, please. Edna rose to this occasion likewise. The cage was placarded thus. Danger! Do not touch our rat! 2. By far the largest load to arrive that exciting day was the one sent by Mr. Tucker. But what a disreputable, disheartening load it was! The contents of the heavily loaded dray were carried to the back of the store to be sorted and classified. There were battered and rusty lengths of stovepipe, broken vinegar jugs, shattered window glass, and even pieces of brick and mortar. The gem of the collection was certainly the life-sized bust of Julius Caesar, but the Roman's skull was cracked, his nose gone, and much of the bronze complexion had peeled off in patches. "'It has absolutely no redeeming feature,' said Alma Boyce, eyeing it in dismay. "'I hope busts aren't considered furniture.' 
It has no features of any sort that I can see, said Virginia. I'm afraid it belongs in Helen's department, but we'll never be able to sell it in this world. Oh, I don't know, responded Helen hopefully. Some boy may buy it for a few cents in order to break it up and see what it's made of. I'm bound to get back the half dollar we paid to get this load of trash brought here. If I don't, I shall pay it out of my own pocket. We might have known, said Louise Bentley, that that horrid old Ephraim Tucker would get ahead of us if we gave him half a chance. There isn't a saleable article in this entire outfit. I don't think I'm more vindictive than other people, said Helen, whose eyes blazed indignantly. But I'd give the best article on my shelves to get even with that mean, contemptible man. Send him the rat, suggested Edna. Oh, of course there's no way to retaliate returned Helen, eyeing the heap vindictively. But just the same, I mean to put in all my spare time watching for a chance. Here's a box of horribly cobwebby bottles, said Amy, pulling one out to examine it. Let's wash them. Perhaps we can sell them if they're clean. Why, exclaimed Helen, they've never been opened. They look like patent medicines of some sort, but I guess they're all dried up. Old Tucker, volunteered Mr. Dillman, who had arrived in hot haste to purchase back, for eighty-seven cents, his own most comfortable shoes, which Mrs. Dillman, with her customary zeal, had generously but unwisely contributed. Old Tucker used to sell drugs years ago, but he went out of the business when Brown started in. Hello, did you notice this stamp? If I'm not mistaken, and I guess I'm not, this is one of the old private proprietary stamps used just after the Civil War. I don't collect stamps myself, but I used to know a man that did. And if you could get hold of a stamp catalog now... There's one on my book counter this minute, interrupted Rhoda Belknap, rushing after it. I believe, said the purchaser of his own shoes, eagerly examining more bottles, that you've made a find. These stamps are certainly worth something to somebody. Here's the stamp book, cried Rhoda, adding herself to the eager group crouching about the dusty bottles. I can supply you with anything from a cookbook to a fairy tale. Dr. Piper's pain cure, read Amy from the bottle. Piper, Piper, murmured Helen, running a dusty forefinger down the catalog's index. Here it is. Two cent black, forty cents. Here's another kind, said Amy, studying a second bottle. Benjamin Bailey's bitters for the bilious. Bailey. Here it is, said businesslike Helen. Blue, is it? Seventy-five cents. Next. Walter Willard's wormwort. One cent green. Twenty-five cents, announced Helen. Of the stamps, there were several duplicates, but when the odd little bits of paper, looking quite bright and attractive when freed from dust, had been inventoried, it was found that the prices, with two exceptions, ranged from twenty-five to seventy-five cents per stamp. The exceptions caused a great deal of excitement. One from a bottle labeled Ring's Vegetable Ambrosia was catalogued at ten dollars, and another decidedly unprepossessing dull black four-cent stamp laid claim to being worth fifteen. I'd advise you, said Mr. Dillman, to soak these stamps carefully from the bottles, mount all these cheaper ones on a large piece of cardboard, and sell them for about twenty-five cents apiece. You should be able to get at least five for each of the others. I'll speak to one or two collectors about them. 
Do you mean five dollars? gasped Amy. I do, said Mr. Dillman, smiling. Well, declared Amy, if we sell those stamps, we won't need to worry about that fifty-cent dray. You'll make money enough, prophesied Mr. Dillman. But I can tell you enterprising young people one thing. I intend to sleep in these shoes all this week to keep them out of your clutches, and it'll be a long time before I forgive you for considering my most comfortable pair worth only eighty-seven cents. The rummage sale proved a great drawing card. Almost all Gardenville flocked to it, and the visitors were almost as varied as the stock. There were thrifty housekeepers in search of bargains, well-dressed women looking for old brass candlesticks, spinning wheels, and antique china, and the humble newly married appearing hand in hand to inspect the low-priced furniture. To the girl's surprise, however, it was the very poor who made the greatest number of purchases, seizing with pathetic eagerness the shabbiest of the cast-off garments and the most disreputable of the shoes. Most numerous of all were the crowds that attended merely out of curiosity. I hope, said Adelaide Stone, that nobody minds if I sell things cheaper than they're marked. This business just wrings my heart. I just can't help almost giving things away when those poor worried women seem to need them so dreadfully. Think of anybody being glad to pay for such frowsy, moth-eaten old gowns. I know, sympathized Elizabeth. I want to say, do help yourself to shoes if you want them, and never mind the money. Of course I can't do quite that, but I have cut all my prices in half. Mr. Tucker was not present at the opening of the sale. He contented himself with passing the window twice that day, grinning sardonically each time at the disfigured countenance of his old enemy Julius Caesar. The Roman statesman sat enthroned in the window and looked rather worse than usual, for he was crowned with a gorgeous bonnet that had once belonged to the stone girls' Aunt Harriet, whose tastes in bonnets was decidedly unique. "'That old Ephraim Tucker,' said Amy, "'thinks he's just too smart for words.' He winks at that bust every time he goes by. I can just hear him say, We fooled him, old chap, didn't we? Well, said Amy, if we sell those stamps, we'll convince him that we weren't so badly fooled after all. Even without Mr. Tucker, his family was well represented, for two-thirds of it just about lived at the rummage sale. F., the sixteen-year-old grandson, and Miriam, the ten-year-old granddaughter of Mr. Tucker, hung over the fascinating array of bargains all day long. When young Ephraim saw the stamps nicely mounted on the big white card, there flashed into his face the peculiar eager expression worn only by the enthusiastic stamp collector. Amy saw and recognized it. "'I can't sell you these two, said Amy, showing him the valuable pair on a smaller card, "'because I've promised to save them for a man that thinks he wants them. "'But those others are twenty-five cents apiece.' Would you like them all? You bet I would, said the boy emphatically. What'll you take for the lot? Well, said Amy with an odd smile, since it's you, I'll let you have all there are on the big card. Let me see. They come to six dollars, don't they? Yup, gulped Ephraim eagerly. Well, you may have them for five dollars. I'll take them. I've got the money at home. I'll be back in two shakes with it. I know a man who will pay as much as that for the ones I don't want. Don't you let him get away while I'm gone. I won't, promised Amy with a significant smile. I'd rather you had them than anyone else in town. Did F. Tucker buy those stamps? 
queried Helen a moment later. Yes, replied Amy. I had a good mind to throw in that horrible bust as an inducement, but I was sure F wouldn't carry it home. I'm glad you didn't, said Helen quietly, for I've just sold it to his sister for forty-seven cents. What? gasped Amy. Yes, I've actually sold it, and to Miriam Tucker, of all people. Her mind was divided between the bust at fifty-seven cents and the rat at a quarter. When I saw that she favored the rat, I indulged in a wild burst of generosity and offered her both for forty-seven cents. My dear, she fairly jumped at the offer. Her grandfather is to call for them on his way home from the store. What? again exclaimed astonished Amy, whose vocabulary seemed reduced for the time being to that one word. Yes, that amiable child says she's just recovering from typhoid, and that her grandfather is afraid to refuse her anything for fear of bringing on a relapse. She's just another little Ephraim Tucker in petticoats. Miriam lost no time before dragging her reluctant grandfather to the sale. Amy, with a perfectly demure countenance, received the forty-seven cents, which he grudgingly paid into her hand. And brave Helen, trusting to luck, lifted down the rat trap and actually succeeded in wrapping it in paper without releasing the rat. "'You'll be glad to know,' said Helen, smiling her very sweetest smile as she opened the door for Mr. Tucker, who had Julius Caesar under one arm and the rat under the other, "'that we've already made fifteen dollars from the things you so kindly sent us.' Mr. Tucker may have been glad, but his countenance failed to express anything that looked at all like joy." That, said Amy, was decidedly mean. I know it, said Helen cheerfully, but didn't he deserve it? He did, shouted the loyal sixteen, most of whom had flocked to the front of the store in order to see the last of Julius Caesar. We're glad you rubbed it in, for it's the very first time that anybody ever got the best of Ephraim Tucker. Financially, of course, the sale was a great success. For business like Virginia announced on the final day that the proceeds amounted to almost three hundred dollars. We've proved conclusively, said Mabel Mercer in her very grandest manner, which was very grand indeed, that the sweet sixteen can do something besides making candy. And eating it, added Edna. Yes, said Virginia, Gardenville really has reason to be proud of her girls. Think of our making three hundred dollars. And think, said Helen, of being indebted to Ephraim Tucker for fifteen dollars and forty-seven cents. What pleases me, supplemented Amy, is the fact that he's living with Julius Caesar this very minute, for Miriam, they say, loves that battered bust better than any doll she ever owned. End of chapter 13